Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and this week's episode includes tales from Transylvania, rosettes and how secret smoking led to a lifetime obsession with botany. Before we get started though, I have some very good news. This podcast has been so popular that it's going from fortnightly to weekly, so you don't have to wait quite so long to get your wildflower fix. It's also now the start of the wildflower season and that means we're starting up our weekly challenges again. The wonderful Rebecca Wheeler will be running these and we'll be hearing more from her about what's in store later in this episode. Now, one of the key aims of Wildflower Hour is to get more and more people falling in love with wildflowers. We're doing a pretty good job already as it does trend on Twitter every Sunday evening, even in the winter. And the organisations we support say they are getting more members and volunteers as a result, which is a massive result. But how can we really make wildflowers as important culturally as other wildlife such as birds? Josh Sparks is a gardener at the world-famous Sissinghurst and has been responsible for introducing wildflower meadows there. He's also travelled the world finding out about wildflower culture in other countries and he's even managed to find a wildflower festival. He therefore seemed like a pretty good person to get inspiration from about how to make wildflowers massive in Britain. So Josh, you've travelled the world, it sounds like, looking at wildflower meadows everywhere and one of the things you have noticed is that people value their wildflowers a little bit more in other countries than we do in Mm -hmm. ours why is that it's because in these other countries especially my travels in mainland europe and eastern europe there's still a necessity there's still to put it into a quote attila who i stayed with in romania he said meadows were life because the meadows fed the cows and then the cows gave the food source to them and I think they have a greater connection to nature also. They, they're very rich farming communities and farming has a connection to nature. Um, and so their communities are built on this idea of meadows and land and good farming use because they know that if they start to adopt bad farming practices, they'll destroy the soil, they'll reduce the fertility, it'll be harder, they'll have to resort to horrible kind of chemicals or more modern techniques. Um, so they opt for this more holistic, traditional form of farming that they've done for hundreds and hundreds of years in some places. And so we've lost touch with wildflowers in this country as a result of our our change in the way our society works. Massively. Uh, I think we have the biggest disconnect, probably, I would say, on par with America, but I still feel America has a greater connection to the wildflowers in natural areas. Um, You know, in, in England, we've been a market country since, I think, since about the 14th century. And from that market culture, we've gone into tradition of buying our food. We, you know, we, we've, we've, we've left that idea of growing it. Um, and there was farming all the way up into the 1950s, begun in that kind of 14th century. Um, and now we're at a point where we are totally dependent on buying our food. We don't, we don't care where it's come from or how it's packaged. You know, you look at kind of how meat is presented to us and vegetables. We, we don't really know where it comes from anymore. It's just there and we buy it. And that disconnect, we've totally lost everything with the countryside. And also the farming can flip side that because how people consider the countryside now is we see it as ploughed green pastures. We see it as hedgerows, one or two trees within that hedgerow. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll get one oak tree in a field that's been ploughed all around it. And this kind of bleak, almost barren countryside that we now have is seen as the normal. So wildflowers don't really fit within that anymore. So we don't have that connection. You know, people would rather see a a ploughed field rather than wildflowers because that is the way that we've been brought up now. 
And that obviously matters to you and it matters to me because we both like wildflowers. But does it actually matter in wider society and wider society that people don't particularly care about or recognise their own native wildflowers? I think it's terribly sad that we don't recognise our wildflowers. Wildflowers create an individuality to a country in most cases or an area within that country. And because we've lost our wildflowers, especially the wildflowers link to other things. They link to the the ecology that comes from them, the different pollinators. You know, it's bees, but also moths, hoverflies, other species of flying insects. And that can also range to things like all the different beetles, invertebrates. And through the disconnection of the wildflowers, we get a disconnect through that. Because of that, we no longer see their importance or we don't value their importance. Uh, And we're starting to feel it now, you know, with massive declines in bee populations, uh, which is a a really worrying time. And the loss of appreciation to our wildflowers, you end up with that kind of lack of appreciation to everything that goes around them. And because we no longer value our wildflowers, what's happening is that our next generation aren't valuing them. We're not we're not doing enough to teach people about them. We want children to fall in love with them. And what's happening now is children are growing up with this attitude to the countryside being very bleak and green, or you may see a field of rape, which people love sometimes. And because of it, nothing's going to change from that. So we have to start to value our wildflowers and teach our next generation, our children about them and ourselves about them so we can get that appreciation back and we can start build those natural ecologies that we want. And it's a shame because even the commonest wildflowers are now rapidly disappearing. You know, soon it will be a rare sight to see geraniums in Wiltshire because the cutting regimes are too different on the road verges. Uh, Or we may see a total disappearance of our ragged robins as wetlands get drained and we forget about the kind of beauty that they add to the meadow. Um, And especially traveling to other countries and seeing that appreciation is, is an amazing thing, you know. Every farmer can identify their wildflower roughly and every farmer will know what that wildflower in the meadow does for their animal. Um, again, Attila in Romania would identify certain species that he knew, that he knew his cows would eat when they felt a bit sick because he reckoned that they could identify what herbage to graze depending how they felt. They could naturally find their own medicinal values in the plants. And it's just something we don't have anymore in this country, which is a real shame. So how do we change that in this country? We're we're not going to go back to having small holdings. I'm not going to suddenly start keeping cows in the part of southwest London where Mm. I live. But you've seen different cultural ways of making wildflowers important in different parts of the world, haven't you? Just explain what's been done in some countries to make wildflowers almost part of the tourist culture. Yeah, Definitely. We're not going to go back to the way that meadows are. You know, we love to romanticise about it. You know, I'm a massive romanticist. I love meadows, but I also love the idea of that kind of 17th, 18th century meadow. You know, I, I have romantic images of people under a big haystack and it's, it's never going to go back to that. It's, impossible. It's, it's an unsustainable system. And I honestly feel the only way that we can do this now, the only way that we can really share the importance of wildflowers and meadows especially is through horticulture uh, and I'm a horticulturalist a uh, gardener uh, I'm not a botanist and I'm not an ecologist uh, and I use meadows for their aesthetic and meadows using meadows for their aesthetic I get so many different benefits that I can have in my garden I get the benefits of wildlife education interpretation um, and I think that public gardens especially or public parks are the most influential people for the natural world. 
Um, and it comes down to the fact that we have a connection to our visitors. People come to our gardens, our parks, um, and they feel that they partially own it. You know, it's something that they're supporting by paying admission fee or membership. Um, and it feels as much as theirs as it is ours who manage it. And one of the problems that the current Meadow Drive has, I feel, especially in this country, is every example of meadow restoration, wildflowers, uh, is usually on large, huge swathes of private land. You know, a farmer has decided to convert X hundred acres into wildflowers, which is an amazing thing, but it just feels really inaccessible. Or um, different charities or organisations will support one person to help change their public, uh, their private land into meadows, um, and it just really it feels really inaccessible. And I think people look at that and go, "Oh, well, I can't do that, and I can't contribute. So what's the point?" So through the public gardens and parks, we can do that. People can feel that they are part of that and they want to learn more because of it because it starts this idea of fascination. Um, and meadows to me are fascination. Once you get fascinated, you just want to learn more and more and more. And I think this particularly worked well when I was traveling in Slovenia. So I went to Slovenia for about three weeks to look at their wildflowers and meadows. Uh, and one of the reasons I went was because I heard of the Wildflower Festival in the, in the Bokin Valley, um, about an hour from Ljubljana. And it's a beautiful space. It's really, really beautiful. And each year they hold an international wildflower festival. That's what they call it. And it, it was a partnership between Slovenia, Bulgaria, partial Romania. And it used to be part of Scotland, but it's no longer part of Scotland. And Slovenia was the hub of the whole thing. And it was just a fantastic experience. The whole festival was designed to educate tourists uh, on wildflowers, meadows, farming, communities. It wasn't just meadows. It was everything. It was everything that a meadow supported and everything that supported the meadow. So they would hold botanical tours using local botanists and farmers. And the tour would cost you about two euros. And you'd go off for three hours looking at wildflowers. Uh, and the people would describe the importance of these flower, wildflowers, these meadows, how the farmer uses them. And they also included cultural activities. So you went to meet farmers and you could talk to farmers about how they were managing meadows, how they were restoring them, their fears of the future. Uh, so you could really identify, you know, the problems that they can see. Uh, and it's the same as us. 50 years ago, they're seeing problems with huge land buying up. Farmers now reducing from 200 people in a community farming X amount of acres to one farmer farming that X amount of acres. You know, they're really trying to stop that. Uh, and stopping these kind of big supermarket chains from supporting those single farmers to produce cheap produce that they can sell in their shop and make a profit. The festival would also hold scientific tours on top of that. So they would, there's two scientific, scientific lectures, I believe, uh, and they will be describing those um, problems in declines. Uh, when I went, it was a decline in pollinators and bee species due to intensive agriculture and how the idea of meadows and single communities was supporting pollinating within the valley. And so much more, the interpretation, they would give you a map so you can go hunt wildflowers. Uh, everything seemed really perfectly accessible. Uh, and even more, it was just a hub of activity. Uh, you had tourists coming to see meadows and wildflowers, but you also had professional gardeners, botanists, ecologists. Uh, and you'd all stay in this one hotel and you would talk over dinner about what you'd seen. And the next morning you would go off hunt different wildflowers. Uh, I met a man called Branco in the bar. And before I knew it, I was hunting 20 different species of orchids over the mountains of the Bohin Valley with him and then going back to the pub afterwards to talk about it. And what the festival brought, 
apart from kind of income to the area and a support for the local community and farmers, which I think they desperately wanted. It also changed the attitudes of the council, the people who kind of, you know, the government agency who managed the area. It got to a point that they were growing while they were allowing the meadows and wildflower species to grow on every last single road verge that they could possibly do because they knew that the wildflowers were the reason why so many people were in the valley to look. So everything was just allowed to grow long for the festival. It was almost, again, like a kind of garden event. And to help maintain those areas, they would work with smallholders, uh, local farmers, people who own tiny properties, one single cow. Uh, and they would say, once the festival is coming to an end, by all means, mow the verges that you want, take the hay and use it to feed your animals. So they were getting a really good system using the local community to mow the areas that they were allowing to grow long. Uh, and benefiting both parties and I managed to go to a school so th the reason I went was because I was hoping that I could create a similar event uh, back in Britain especially in the garden that I work in and I wanted to see different different processes that they were doing to educate as well because I think that interpretation education on the topic of meadows is just as key as producing and making them uh, so I went to a school uh, and I met the teacher uh, and we sat down the whole afternoon and we discussed what the children were doing as part of the festival because the school, again, was included in the festival. Um, and they had decided to, one, create a two-week almost wild school, they called it. Um, but the wild school was taking the students out for two weeks. They would learn about meadows, wildflowers, the ecology that lived off those different meadows and wildflowers, woodlands, but they'd also learn about farming and traditional farming and how this benefits their attitude towards meadows, uh, trying to like steer children away from the modern, the modern um, kind of drive to agriculture. They would also create a project. So each child would go into a group. They would be asked to produce a project related to meadows or farming, and the group that won would win a small prize. So it encouraged the kids to do it. They would also do art installations. They would have a topic each year. So it could be bees, it could be wildflowers, it could be lilies, it could be cattle. And they would produce an art piece and they would post it in the school all summer so that everyone can see how the school was getting involved. Um, it was just a really fantastic and exciting place to be on the topic. And it was just teaching the local people and the kind of foreign people, the tourists, so much about the importance of the wildflowers and farming to that area. So do you think we could have a wildflower Glastonbury in this country? I think it's ridiculous that we don't have a wildflower Glastonbury in this country. I think that we have an amazing opportunity to do so. I really, really question why we couldn't do a similar thing to the, uh, the Bohem Valley in Slovenia. We have X amount of land that we can do it. We have, you know, our meadows are in massive decline. You know, don't get me wrong. But there are, again, gardens and parks that have huge swathes of meadows that they could use for a similar event. Um, there's nothing to stop, say, taking a region, say, you know, southeast or whatever, and including loads of gardens within that group or that area and everyone at the same time having this festival idea. So people could travel to different properties, different areas, and everything is connected by this one overall festival. Uh, and each property can educate on a different topic. You could have one that has established 200, 300 year old meadows with amazing species diversity that are show off every single orchid and buttercup uh, and make every other garden envious. But you could also equally have a garden that's starting their meadow journey, talking about how they're taking back these kind of horrible ecological holocaust lawns and turning them back into wildflower meadows again you know you could just do so many different aspects on it one garden could have 
a massive species increase in bees or one garden could have a huge increase in mammals or spiders or whatever and you could just all link them together perfectly um and i i I really really hope in the future that we do a similar thing really i think that if we have this meadow festival we have to work as one an area has to work as one if you have multiple organizations within that uh, you just all need to band together for that time and help each other out and just really focus on the message you know you could have so many different charities you could have the national trust plant life wildlife trust english heritage different nature reserves all joining together for it helping each other to just produce this amazing educational experience and it definitely shouldn't just wholeheartedly be on meadows it should be on forestry it should be on wetlands it should be everything that's connected to them meadows should be the kind of hook that you you bring people in because they're just so beautiful and amazing that everyone wants to see them but you could just filter into so many different aspects and it's also a huge huge dedication from the local councils of that area what's not to say that you could have a village where there's a garden uh, and the garden is holding this wildflower festival but as you're going through the village there's planting containers with wildflowers there's different signage there's road verges that the council have decided to let grow so that all at this one period in time everyone's just together and there's just a huge abundance of wildflowers that just constantly greet people and get them interested straight from the beginning to the end so i think that is an important factor that we have to think of like slovenia including the school there's nothing to say that we can take our school children out and educate them about meadows within these areas that we have them and then they can go back and do another project um kind of creating that community life again. That was Joshua Sparks on how to make Brits bananas about wildflowers. We'll be hearing more from him later in the year when we visit Sissinghurst to see what he gets up to in his meadows. And if that wasn't enough of a treat, I have even lovelier news for you, which is that every month the wonderful Zoe Devlin is going to be reading extracts from her beautiful book, Blooming Marvellous, A Wildflower Hunter's Year, on this podcast. And here's her story for February. A large part of my formative years was spent attending a convent school in Dublin. To the rear of a rickety old bicycle shed that housed our precious rallies and rudges was an area where a few of us used to sneak and where we thought we were safe from the nuns' eyes. A vegetable garden lay before us, old moss-covered apple trees lining the pathways around rectangular patches of cabbages and onions. Behind us, As we sat on a low granite wall was the chapel. What were we doing there? Learning to smoke, of course. How we thought we would get away with it, I don't know. And of course we eventually got into trouble. But it was all part of growing up. We would sit there, trying to conquer the dizziness that accompanied our first tentative drags on shared woodbines, wafting away the telltale smoke, along with our guilt perhaps. Or was it our innocence? We often spent our lunch hours there, sitting in our gym slips, giggling, bums frozen, thoughts running in so many directions. What if we're caught? What would our parents say? But there was another part of my mind that even then had begun to wander off in a different direction. I was taking in something else as well as nicotine, and in retrospect, it was a lot healthier. My radar had detected an abundance of small plants growing on those walls. They were ivy-leaved toadflax, a species introduced into Ireland from the Mediterranean region 
about 400 years ago. It is a trailing plant with lilac-coloured flowers whose shape resembles miniature snapdragons. It has two upper petals and a lovely, generous, three-lobed lower lip with two splotches of yellow at the opening into the dragon's mouth. It grows mainly on limestone or mortared walls and it has an ingenious mechanism for ensuring next year's generation. The flowers turn their heads up to the sun until they have been fertilised. Then they twist around towards the wall they are growing on, pushing the seeds into any little niche or crevice in order for them to develop. They also have long roots, which help them to hang on, guaranteeing the survival of their species. Found at almost any time of the year, they are particularly fresh and bright from February to November. Now, from my lofty non-smoker's perch, when I look at that little flower growing on my own garden wall, it always takes me back to that place in my youth and our happy-go-lucky gym-slipped giggles. Thank you, Zoe. And finally, details of that weekly challenge. Every week from now on, we will be challenging you to look for certain plants or flowers in certain habitats alongside your normal wildflower hour activities. The challenge will launch every Monday morning and you'll have until the next wildflower hour on a Sunday between 8 and 9 p.m. to find what we've asked for. This week's challenge is to look at the basal leaf rosettes of wildflowers and Rebecca Wheeler is here to tell you what you need to do. Usually for wildflower hour, we ask you to post pictures of the wild plants that you have found in bloom for that week. However, for our first challenge of 2018, we are also encouraging you to look at the leaves and in particular those arranged in a basal rosette. In botany, a rosette is a circular arrangement of leaves with all of the leaves at a similar height. For a basal rosette, these are at ground level. A good example would be a plantain. Why are we asking you to do this? Well, it's fun and also it's a really handy skill to be able to recognise plants when they are not in flower. What would we like you to do for this challenge? You don't need to be able to name the plants, you just need to be able to find them. So we would like you to go out and look for a plant rosette. Photograph it, showing the habitat around it. Zoom in and photograph the individual leaves. Lastly, turn one of the leaves over and photograph the underneath. And also note, is it hairy, spiny, succulent, smelly? Then post your photographs, tag Wildflower Hour and use the hashtag Rosette Challenge. And then our lovely, knowledgeable Wildflower Hour community will help you to identify them. So happy hunting, and we can't wait to see what you've managed to find this week. Don't forget that Wildflower Hour works with and supports the Wildlife Trusts, Plant Life, the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, and the Wildflower Society. You can find out more about these amazing organisations on our website, wildflowerhour.co.uk. And you can also go there to read about some of the highlights of the latest Wildflower Hour, learn more about how to identify plants, and if you have children or are a teacher, join in with the junior section of Wildflower Hour, Herbology Hunt. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back again with more botanical adventures in just a week's time.